Thank you for tuning in to Talk Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and again, we are live from Star Wars Celebration Chicago. This is our conversation with Mr. Lauren Peterson, Academy Award-winning model maker for the original trilogy and the prequels. If you know me at all, you know that this is such a dream come true, and thanks to Inside Editions, I can say that this is Talking Bay 94, episode 35. Lauren Peterson. Okay, we are joined, and I still can't believe it. We are joined today by Mr. Lauren Peterson, who I've wanted on this show since we we started. Uh, Mr. Peterson, thank you so much for for well, coming on. Well, thanks. <laughs> I um, didn't know that you wanted me here forever. Well, I mean, you know, I would have been here sooner. That's what I like to hear, but you're here now. We are in Chicago for Star Wars Celebration. We're promoting your book thanks to Inside Edition, Sculpting a Galaxy, which is one of the best making up books of all time, in my oh, opinion. Well, oh. I said it to, we, I have pretty much every making up book that yeah, Star Wars uh-huh. has ever put out in history. And th- I just love this where it focuses on the details and yeah. you can see A lot of model makers uh, that I, I know on Facebook, not that I, I know them as small people sure. in pictures on Facebook, but they all bought it uh, to see the details right. of the models, you know. It's like a sculpting Bible. Yeah, like a sculpting Bible. <laughs> well, before we even dive into to what's in this book, I would first love to talk about what inspired you to get into model making, get into this uh-huh. special effects. What was the first impetus? Well, it's, it's kind of a long, circuitous route. I, I graduated in art uh, from university, but uh, at the early, late 60s, there wasn't that many jobs, you know. And uh, so I was offered uh, by one of my, I took a w- industrial design class, one, and uh, I ran into a friend in a gallery and he said, Dave's been looking for you, he wants to hire you. He started a company. He isn't teaching anymore. And uh, even though I didn't only had one class, he said, man, I don't care. I liked your work. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we embarked upon that for a couple of years. And then, uh, believe it or not, I uh, sculpted McDonald's land next to uh, the big hamburgers. And I was a good sculptor also, big stuff. And knew how to sculpt with a chainsaw, then a reciprocal saw, and then machetes, and then knives, and Mm -hmm. all that stuff. Uh, But um, I had a small uh, industrial design and model shop with me and another guy. We were starving, Mm -hmm. really starving. And uh, happened to be someplace when I came across somebody I went to university with. Mm And he said, Lauren, 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 uh, haven't seen you in years, and uh, we're, we're working on a science fiction film out in the valley. Do you think, uh, you think you're free for doing something like that? And I was like, well, let's come out and see. And so I said, could I bring my partner with me? He's a good model maker, too. And, and uh, that's, that's how it started. I, w- I wasn't really looking for uh, uh, such a job or anything like that. Well, what were the first things that you were told about the film? Like, what was the first role that you had to serve? Well, you know, you don't at, you don't get scripts when you're doing. Uh, well, later on, I did get as heading up projects, but you got the script. But at that stage, you didn't. So you, you know, people tell you the story. You know, goodbye, good guys, bad guys. You know, real bad guy kind of thing. And um, and then there was a lot of art drawings. You know, Joe Johnson, the art director, had done a lot of drawings. And so, it, right from the beginning. Uh, the drawings and the work that they were doing suggested this was a good. This was going to be a good film. It wasn't, uh, but it was still not capital S Star Wars. You know, S T Star Wars, S W Star Wars. Sorry, mm-hmm. but um, you could tell. But I was just hired for two months mm-hmm. to solve a problem on the Death Star. My, my partner and I. That's what it was. But uh, we did. Uh, we did really good work, 
and very quickly they they said, okay, none more of that and more of this. And uh, quite frankly, uh, one of the things that changed the both the world of metal making and my work there was um, I was aware of industrial materials, which uh, uh, a lot of people weren't, you know, because I worked in industrial design. And superglue was then called uh, Eastman 910. It wasn't available uh, on a retail level. And I came in one morning, about four days later, and I put a pencil, cantilevered over a table. Oh, because they were using five-minute epoxy. I cantilevered over the table, put a drop in it, and I moved my hand, and the pencil stayed there. And everybody went, how in the world did you do that? What happened? And uh, so it changed the speed with which right. we were able to do everything. And then no one ever mentioned the fact that we were only hired for two months. Right. Came turned 20 years and 40 years. And well, you mentioned both the industrial design elements of the initial Star Wars model making and then something that was, it's now famous, the kit bashing method that y'all were doing for the models. What was kind of the first steps of taking those Joe Johnson drawings and turning them into, let's say, you mentioned the Death Star, but what about like the escape pod you worked on? Like how was that then transferred over? Right. The film 2001 used kit bashing. Mm -hmm. So it was done in England a number of, a couple of years before that. And so it wasn't that we invented the thing. But we would watch and look at stills from 2001. And the problem that we saw was when, when the film, when the thing is moving, it's one thing. But when it slows down or, you know, more acrobatic uh, movements, um, we realized that a lot of the things weren't really interconnected. Mm -hmm. You know, so this box here was totally separate from this, was that. And so we came up with this thought of interconnecting everything. Just like when you look at an engine and there's, from the carburetors, there's pipes that go this way, and there's a big thing that goes that way, and the spark plugs go this way, and the wires go that. So we decided that um, that was a kind of a look, because we knew how they were, these things were going to be used. And uh, so we had to uh, make it really look like no one would question uh, that uh, that thing didn't really work. Right. Yeah. And especially like with the Dykstra Flex, right? Like the things were going to be so close. Really so, close. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the uh, pod uh, was uh, one of those, uh, what I called a one-week wonder. It was, <laughs> it was only going to be used in the one shot, you know. Yeah. And you can devote time and money to something that's going to be used in shot after shot after shot. But something that is uh, only going to be used in one shot uh, has to be good, but it can't be, uh, you know, it can't be a six-month project, anything like that. So when I saw the drawings, I saw the angle of everything. And we thought of a good size in a paint bucket. A paper paint bucket looked exactly like the, that angle. So a uh, paint bucket this way and a truncated paint bucket the other way. And uh, I filled them with foam, and then I stripped the paper off and covered it in plastic. And, you know, it, it, it probably took a couple more days than a week to do, but it was done pretty quickly. And, uh, and then we, we completed that. We did that shot, and we were... It was nice in that it didn't require any optics optical work afterwards because we dropped it into black velvet and you can't see this you know you don't have time to see that there's no stars there and then from the edge are these little solenoids that uh, like the when you hear a washing machine uh, you go clunk there's little solenoids that are heading out there were three of those to pull back and I put a bunch of um, mica dust on the top of each one of them so when they pulled back they shot out mica mm -hmm. And that when the little sparkles, like uh, you know, little explosive bolts, bolts had gone off, and it caused this little floating. Of, and since it was shot straight down, uh, even when the mica dust floated down, it still looked like it was kind of on the same plane. Yeah. And that added to the shot. So 
once it was, it, it was shot, and it was a finished shot. So that was a nice thing. It didn't have to go to optical and could show to George Lucas and say, hey, yeah, we're making we, progress. We finished so. the shot, yeah. What, um, you mentioned the one-week wonders, but then there are the, the very involved models that you also worked the, on. Which models? The very involved models, like yeah. a Star Destroyer or a Millennium Falcon. Yeah. What was, did you take the, the learnings from these smaller models and apply them, or how was that, that process? Uh, well, when I arrived, uh, the Princess's ship, the Blockade Runner, was already... Um, it was being shifted to being the princess's ship. Mm-hmm. And it, it was about five feet long, so that was about the same size, length of the, the Millennium Falcon. Because uh, it was going to be the Millennium Falcon at the beginning, and then we did the, the similar Sunflower, I mean the uh, Sunfish one. Mm-hmm. And George had conceived of it at one time of flying, you know, landing like this, and then the rotating cockpit, and it would fly mm-hmm. like a sunfish. And I, I don't know, that went by the wayside real quickly, and I don't know why, but it did. Bigger models, you know, you have to. You also have to realize that on the first show, even the white Star Destroyer was only a little bit more than three feet. Mm-hmm. When we did Empire, we made a, a one that was eight feet long, so it was much bigger, and uh, you know, well, similarly de- detailed, maybe a little bit more. But uh, even the white Star Destroyer wasn't that big, three feet. Uh, we we were tending to do models that were all could fit on a table, like we're looking at right now, eight feet or something like that. And um, uh, later on, as we started, uh, especially by the time you got to uh, Sith, or uh, Jedi, uh, yeah, Jedi, and then Sith. Sith had really big models. And, you know, we're sitting in a room right now that's uh, 35 feet by 60 feet, something like that. And um, Mustafar, for that last film, was maybe three-quarters the size of this room. So it, 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 we call them bigotures sometimes rather than miniatures, yeah, yeah. you know. The, the size is, is kind of determined um, how close it's going to be to camera, what the scale of it is. You know, there was a radical difference in scale between the white Star Destroyer to the pod racer, uh, to, not the pod racer, the, um, the pod that they escaped in, escape pod. So, um, you know, it, it was very close to camera, had good details. But, of course, the white Star Destroyer has to have, like, super small little details on it, you know, because it's supposed to be, uh, you know, how many, it's, it's long, I think 1,200 feet is what I calculated I was about going to be from that little geodesic dome on the top. I, I, I measured those, um, they were at a Nike missile bases, those, and they are approximately 80 feet in diameter. So it became like the holy grail to figure out the scale of things because that thing reappears a number of times and then you just use the 80 foot as the holy grail of how big that is. And it means the Darth Vader's ship, the uh, executor, is multiple times 1,200 feet and it's... uh, a mile and a half long or something like that. I'm, I'm also glad, as a side note, that we, we just confirmed that it's the executor and not the executor, right? That's, that's, a, big, <laughs> yeah. that's a big debate. So yeah. this, is, this is straight from the map. Well, you know, I think George started a rumor that it was Revenge of the Jedi, you know, <laughs> and it was a trick because uh, all around the world they were coming up with uh, products, uh, uh, illegal products, you know, that they were Star Wars T-shirts, uh, laser swords, all this stuff that uh, weren't real. So I, I think what he did was he attached that name Revenge of the Jedi, and then at the last minute he switched it, but he, he knew what so it was. So he could only have the But all the stuff. real vendors knew right. what the secret was, you know. Probably sworn to secrecy. <laughs> and we even had a, uh, on the first show, we were in Van Nuys, California, and this big truck showed up and uh, backed in and says, uh, we, got your, we got the laser swords. And we said, laser swords? Why? 
this is where we do the special effects. He said, well, this is Star Wars, isn't it? I asked around, and, you know, trying to find the, the right address, and he said, well, yes, it is. And, well, I have the T-shirts and the laser swords. So they unloaded all these things, but we called, uh, we called the office, and they said, oh, my God, those are illegal, and they're delivering them to the wrong place. Accept them, yeah. and we'll just put them in the back, and then, you know, wow. they'll realize they've been they've been absconded with so we used all these t-shirts for rags we were they said yeah you just use the t-shirts for rags and but um, i i think the laser swords we shipped off to main office or something yeah. like that but that kind of stuff was happening all the time it was a funny thing about the truck driver probably eventually got to the right address and they really read the riot act to him you know what in the world whole truckload of yeah. Stuff. So I guess on Star Wars, the the first show, what else was happening to make then ILM kind of what became a, a juggernaut in special effects, right? There's this group of talented people that now yeah. are all... It, it, it really, uh, it was an example of being the right people at the right place at the right time, you know. I, I've certainly uh, come across professional model makers, uh, both on Facebook and, and things like this, and I'm, I wouldn't be, uh, you know, I wouldn't be in the top 10% of model makers in the world. You know, I'm a good model maker, but, but the, the, one of the things that they don't necessarily do is time and money. So that was, uh, when you make films, time and money is a really big deal. You know, uh, some things like the, uh, the pod, uh, escape pod, mm -hmm. is only worth so much money. You know, for, it's only used in one shot. Mm -hmm. And something like the White Star Destroyer, is where you shot after shot after multiple films and everything like so you can I, I used to use an example like the the uh, the pod the escape pod could be like a used Toyota you know about uh, uh, the, the price of a, uh, a five-year-old Toyota whereas the price of the white starter store is like a Ferrari right. you know uh, maybe a, a low end uh, uh, Ferraris then you know not Ferraris now I should change that to uh, <laughs> to be uh, high-end uh, BMW right so it makes sense because the 40 years money is it changes right. you know, a lot. I mean, at one time I made 7.50 an hour or something like mm -hmm. that, and uh, you know that was a long time ago. A long time ago. Well, one of the I have a picture here of a long time ago. Uh huh. Um, th this is obviously an audio podcast, but this is the picture of you on the Watchtower in right. Guatemala. Like the song by Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan, all right. along. That's the watch it was written about you. Oh, that's what I that's what I, I should have. I should have had that music playing. <laughs> What is the story here? Because I've heard uh, some different things, but what what got you into this tower? Well, uh, what happened was, and it is a little bit, uh, there's, there are simple stories, but more long, elaborate stories. Uh, and what it was was um, George Lucas apparently had looked through a, um, a National Geographic magazine, and he saw this picture of Guatemala in the jungle, and he went, that's what I want for the uh, uh, the uh, the escape route of the Millennium Falcon and the coming in and all that stuff. So apparently he said to Fox, that's what I want to send a crew down to Guatemala and do that. And they were the money people. Uh -huh. And it was his first film, not his first film, but uh, the first, you know, really big film. And um, they said, hmm, couldn't you use uh, Jungle Land in Disneyland? And you know what he was, it's so obvious that you get a camera up high and there's a parking lot out there, there's all the machinery. It was a ridiculous thing to, right. to say and, and request, but it was an indication of what they probably thought of the film. So eventually they said, okay, we'll give a budget for two people to go to Guatemala. And that was like two people with 13 uh, 
cases of camera equipment and going to the top of the pyramids and all that stuff, I realized that uh, I could speak some Spanish and the two other guys couldn't. I just thought, eh, this is crazy. So I volunteered to go. But even that, they, they didn't, the producer didn't, he just remained silent when I would go and ask him about it. And I went back a couple of times and I said, you know, I'll, I'll go myself. And if you just tell me what plane is leaving, when the plane is leaving and all that stuff, and I'll, I'll be there. Yeah. And he, he would just sit there and not look, not look at me and not say anything. And then finally I just thought, oh, oh, eventually there was a piece of paper with a handwritten note on my desk of what the airplane was. Uh-huh. It didn't say it was from him or any of that kind of stuff. So I went, okay, airplane. And I got on the airplane and, and went. And uh, it was only when I got back, I'll tell the story over there, but it was only when I got back I realized what it was, is that he wanted me to go, but he knew that if he said, you know, yeah, you go by yourself, he was putting himself under a chopping block as far as suits are concerned. If I'd lost a finger or the plane had crashed, uh, and then 20th Century Fox would have been liable, and, you know, and on and on. And at 29 years old, I just didn't even think that way. But I realized that's what he was doing. He couldn't say that kind of thing. But it just happened a piece of paper with a handwritten note of when the airplane took off. Uh, and then I booked that flight. And then, and then you know, the room was provided. Uh, I, I had to share a room with somebody. And the food was, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, every, so everything went perfectly good. But uh, what, what happened was, um, you know, we originally planned, we bought ropes and things like this. And I thought when we, you know, ran ropes up and pulleys to get the stuff up the pyramids, because it was covered with jungle at that time. The top was clear like this, but the bottom part goes way, way down, you know. And it's, the Egyptian pyramids are 52 degrees, and Mayan pyramids, I don't know the degree, but it's much steeper. And uh, the first morning that we did it, uh, it was so hard, and, uh, dripping, hot sweat, t-shirts ringing wet, that we said we can't do that anymore. And so we uh, left it, the equipment on the top of the pyramid and hired some two guys with shotguns to, uh, not that any, well, there's banditos at there at that time, probably still are, and uh, the equipment was very valuable. But uh, yeah, we got there and, and uh, we had uh, permission. We had this tower and the, the rod and all that stuff assembled and we put, it was in a modified trash can <laughs> is what it was. And uh, we had permission to put three pitons, about three inch pitons into the pyramid and that was it. You know, we couldn't do more than three pitons because uh, it would do you know, a little bit of damage to the pyramids. So it was a little rickety. You know, there was a ladder that we set and a hole cut in the backside for you to crawl up and all that stuff. And then it turned out that I was the only one that didn't have kids. Both the other guys had kids. And so I, I said, I, I should do it, you know, because it was at the edge of the pyramid and it was like 300 feet down, you know, two or 300 feet. And if one of the pitons had broken or the eighth inch cables had snapped or, you know, if it, we just didn't do it right, it could tilt over and, and it was so steep, you would just keep going and going and going all the way down. I mean, that's what the Mayans used to throw people off the edge, you know. So anyway, that's that what we did, and we were there for uh, a week because the sunrise and the sunset wasn't just exactly what they wanted, and so we still had to get up at 4:30 in the morning and and go off and uh, get up there on the top of the pyramids, and then we stayed till the sunset each night, and so it was a, a long day in the sun, and it was uh, hot and sweaty in March. I remember that uh, there was a certain pleasure and taking your t-shirt and turning it inside out and it was a little drier on the outside and it would be a it'd be like 45 seconds of of mini pleasure you know it's like oh got a dry t-shirt and yeah. then it would it would soak through the 
and, and then you'd lay and be in the sun for a, a couple hours, and then you'd turn your T-shirt inside out. It was a pleasure that you would never, ever think would be. It's so, it was so minor, but you grabbed it anything you could, you know, something as simple as that. But even in, in, uh, in Guatemala, there's... Uh, uh, great little uh, those stories of things that happen and let me let me tell you one I, you know you can clip out different parts of I, this will be completely uncut okay. this is okay. incredible so here's one thing that happened in the there's a little palapa that we eat in and it, it seats about 12 or 15 people that's it there's little palapas in the jungle it's a dirt runway for the dc a dc3 that lands on a tail dragger kind of a world war ii airplane you sit sideways and strap you anything and canvas uh, things as a military airplane back then and uh, so uh, every morning we had uh, there were chickens around there was eggs and black beans and tortillas eggs black bean tortillas and then uh, they would pack lunches for us and it would oh with black beans they would pack a lunch that would have uh, a chicken and black beans inside of a sandwich you know and sometimes it would just be black beans with no chicken <laughs> and then a beer. And that was it for lunch. And then when dinner, it would be uh, chicken, black beans, and tortillas. <laughs> the same thing over and over again with a beer. So, uh, but the woman who was the cook and the waitress, uh, she would, did all the stuff, was, uh, she, had a, she made cake. So the first night, uh, we had a piece of cake that was about an inch and a half by inch and a half by three-quarter inch high uh, with a little bit of powdered sugar on top and, uh, and a coffee. And um, one of the people invited, you know, asked her over and said, uh, Maria or whatever her name was, you know, uh, he, he did the equivalent of like, you know, we're from Hollywood, uh, we're making a film here. Uh, it means a little bit of money to your little tiny village. And uh, I think that we could probably have a little bit bigger piece of cake, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, she went away. And the next night, uh, we had dinner was exactly the same thing. And then we got a piece of cake that was about four and a half inches by four and a half inches by three inch thick with powdered sugar. And we're all thinking, really proud, you know, like, oh, great, you know, our coffee and some really substantial treat here. And, uh, and then this young woman uh, who was in her 20s somewhere, she came over to our table and she was traveling alone and she said, from now on, I'm actually gonna be eating with you guys. And you know, we thought, great, you know, uh, she was nice looking, uh, she was uh, 24 years old or something like that. And sure, sit down. And, and she said, you know why I'm, I'm gonna have dinner from, with you from now on? It's because look around the room, nobody got any cake tonight and you got all of the cake. <laughs> so. The woman, it turns out the woman only had one pan that was nine and a half inches by nine and a half inches. And she divided, if there were 12 people, she divided it in 12 sections. If it was 15 people, she'd try to do 15 sections. And so she just cut it in four because we had a, a translator with us. And we had to wave her over again and just tell her, let's go back to the old method. Because everybody was kind of looking at us like, like, who are they? You know, what, what in the world is... Oh, why, why no cake for us and big pieces for them, you know? So that was kind of a funny thing that happened. But there were a number of uh, interesting things that happened in Guatemala. That when, when I was on top of the pyramid, uh, I had to be there for hours mm -hmm. waiting for the light to be right or that kind of thing. And people would come up through the jungle, tourists, I mean, really, you know, pulling themselves up through the jungle. And I would say, uh, welcome to temple number three, temple of the sun. And they would just, their jaws would just drop, you know, with this uniform. They didn't see the camera crew. They just saw the, 
well, like there's a guard standing on top of the tower, like a welcoming, welcoming us to uh, uh, to uh, Temple Number Three. I, did I do that in a little bit of Spanish too when the Roman was right? I can't remember, you know. It's <laughs> wild. Uh, I guess we've talked about Star Wars so much. I'd love to now move to Empire, where yeah. where the work was even more elevated, right? The model yeah. work got even more detailed and yeah. more expensive. And you know that there was more people too. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, on on uh, Star Wars, there was pr uh, six model makers, mm -hmm. and then by the time we uh, transitioned into Empire, there was probably ten. Mm -hmm. You know, and then it kept going like that. And uh, by the time you get to Sith, it was about 102 model makers. Mm -hmm. So in in a year and a half, 102 model makers can make many many times what the models. We spent as much money on the models for Sith as was spent on to make the movie without without publicity uh, for the first film. So it was, the budget was quite a bit larger. That's wild. Are stuff. there any models in Empire that stick out to you? You mentioned the executor. I know, I mean, we have in front of us a bunch of space slug, exogorth stuff. Yeah. What, what was kind of the, the next evolution of at least your personal model making work for Empire? Well, it, there was a lot more stuff, you're right. And, um, you know, and fun stuff too. Everything, uh, fun was something we had, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, space slug. Uh, that was you know fun and, and funny. Yeah. You know, here he is sitting here yeah. right next to us. Um, that was the big hand puppet, you know. Mm -hmm. And also uh, a big deal with uh, Empire was it was stop motion, a lot of stop motion. So it meant a lot of snow sets and snow paintings um, with walkers and tauntauns and that kind of thing running through. I I I, I told a story the other day which was kind of interesting about the tauntaun. I'm not sure. Want to hear it? Uh, I would love. <laughs> I would love. To and that is that um, when we we very first arrived, Phil Tippett, the stop motion animator, and I were there was only really two of us. Uh, there were two or three that arrived first, but the building wasn't even didn't have rooms in it, it didn't have hallways. It just had a very front office and a bathroom. So we would lay out uh, two by fours and tell the carpenters that's where we want the room and that's where we want the door. That's how we did it, rather than doing drawings, you know. But anyway, Phil Tippett and I went in pursuit of um, the fur for the Tauntauns. And, you know, the scale of the fur has to be really scaled down. And, um, you know, you think, well, there's something called, uh, every once in a while in a slaughterhouse, there's an unborn calf. Uh, because a cow is, they usually watch this pretty carefully, but if a cow will be pregnant on the early stages and they don't, can't tell, gets slaughtered and behold it, there's a little tiny fetus. And the hair on a fetus is just really small, you know. And what we were looking for was a white, because we wanted to dye it. We couldn't use a black and white one. We wanted a white, unborn fetus. And we went around to slaughterhouses and taxidermists and all this kind of stuff um, without an awful lot of luck at first. And I remember telling Phil, because we did it day after day. We went to different, further, further out places, you know, phoning a lot. And I said, Phil... God, what if people start to believe that we're like devil worshippers or something like that? And this is part of a, some kind of a rite that we're right. doing, you know, because uh, it sounds so weird looking. Because right. some of the people we would ask had no idea that such a thing even existed, you know. Mm -hmm. Slaughterhouses did, but. Yes, I, I, I did not. <laughs> yeah, you did <laughs> this not. Is not okay. And so then the next stage is what you do. The way that King Kong was done was the traditional way that's been used for many, many years. And it's probably an old taxidermist trick. And if you, since a tauntaun is only like 
a foot tall, the skin, if you just used the regular leather, tanned leather and everything, it would be so stiff and everything, and we needed it all flexible. The fur needed to move, and with the bones and the muscles. And uh, the traditional way it's done is you, you take the raw, not the tanned skin, the raw skin, and you paint the fur side with a water-soluble glue. So you just paint it over and over again, really get that saturated. And then you put it in a box with maggots. And the maggots eat the, uh, the raw flesh, but they won't eat the, uh, the follicles. There's no nutrition in hair, uh, whereas there is in uh, raw meat and uh, raw uh, uh, deteriorating meat. Uh, I don't, will maggots go after fresh meat? I don't think, they have to, it has to ripen a little bit, you know. But anyway, that's the tra traditional way you do it. And then after the follicles are all exposed in the glue and the flesh is all gone, you get rid of the maggots and you take latex, flexible latex, and paint it over the follicles until you have a real thin layer of less than a 30-second of an inch of latex. So then you turn it over and wash the glue away, and uh, the water-soluble glue, and now you have this flexible skin yeah. of latex with fur embedded in it, and so you know it's right. you can wrap it around a, a foam right. device and everything, uh, armature and all that stuff. But um, we never could find a raw flesh, and so we had to take a tan thing and use razor blades and laboriously wow. shave away without getting the follicles. Right. You know, and shaving. I mean, you think of how much time that takes to shave away a skin to. You know, and then we dyed it gray and, and that kind of thing. But that's how that's how we came up with the Tauntaun skin. What, um, especially working so closely with Mr. Tippett and with stop motion, especially whether it was ATATs or Tauntauns, what was the difference with a, a static model like a Star Destroyer or a Millennium Falcon and one that would have to move in terms of design elements? Yeah. Well, that uh, Phil Tippett had uh, John Berg with him, and they both were machinists also. So they were making the armatures, and uh, they're the uh, same as the ones where King Kong were done. You know, it's a traditional way of using ball sockets and, and Allen wrenches, Allen bolts to tighten up the ball sockets. Because usually there was a little spot, even through the flesh, that you could put a, a, a ball and uh, Allen wrench, turn or tighten uh, joints and all that stuff. But um, me personally, I'm not a stop motion animator, so I, I did. We did the sets for them, and uh, did the uh, the walker body and all that kind of stuff uh, for to put it on top of their armature, their metal armature. Uh, there's an interesting thing about that too, is that in on, on the snow sets, uh, you have to have, make these trap doors that, um, that it has to look just like the regular, regular snow, but from a low angle, you can't tell that there's a trap door because he, the guy has to pop up. The, the, they shoot one frame of um, film. And then they stop the camera and they pop out of the pop door and then they move the model just a little bit, pop down to the trap door and uh, do another frame over and over and over again. So the guys have to sit underneath of a four foot tall table for hours and days, you know. And uh, what you do is you'd uh, slide in lunches, you know, on a long stick, you know. They wouldn't, you're not supposed to talk to them, you know, slide in a sandwich. and slide in a drink <laughs> and that's they had to sometimes they'd be there literally all day and right. then they do all day the next day and all day the next day right without coming out I, I, you have to be young to do that you know, right. my back would be driving me crazy if i had to sit for a whole day underneath of a four-foot table right 
But, you know, that's another thing, too, that when we first started out, everybody was in their uh, 20s. There were only, I think, about three people that were just barely into their 30s. And the youngest guy was uh, 19, uh, Pete Coran, the head of the uh, animation department. And he was at CalArts uh, in, in Southern California. And uh, I guess he was a really good student. And his teacher just said, here's an address. Get out of school and go work here. This is what you want to do. And so he did, and they went, whoa, you know, it just, it was the perfect thing. He was 19 years old, and uh, he told me one time, because uh, he moved up to uh, do Empire, too, and now Star Wars was a really big deal, you know, and he was, uh, he got a room uh, above a bar uh, in San, uh, San Rafael, and he, first he told me, he says, oh, this is going to be so great, you know. Imagine the girls we're going to meet, you know, like this is, Star Wars is really a big deal. And, uh, you know, this is going to be great. And I, I don't know, he even had a date to that date, you know, that time. And a, a couple of months or uh, six months later, he says, oh, man, the only people that are really interested in Star Wars are 12 and 15-year-old boys. And it's like, what a disappointment. Um, well, I guess moving to the exogorth and the, the space slug, what was the design here? This is so much yeah. different and, and kind of, you know, a whole yeah. other element in terms of it, animal uh, design. Yeah, the space slug, um, you know, there was the, the space slug that was basically two feet long and uh, maybe nine, eight feet in diameter, 10 feet in diameter. And I, I had to make a little jaw, a jaw and the teeth, you know, we did it out of clay and then we take a mold and made it. But there is the thing that it was necessary to have a, POV, a point of view shot, as the Millennium Falcon takes out of the mouth, and the mouth has to be closing. So for that, uh, I made a, a jaw uh, that was about four feet wide with really big teeth that were about three and a half, four inches tall. So, and then it, it, it was just it was door hinges, standard old door hinges on uh, three-quarter inch plywood, right. big, uh, two big C-shaped sections. And then I, I sculpted gums and, and a little bit of blood and all that kind of stuff and a little grime in between the teeth. And, uh, and then we just took a cable up and then ran it down to a pulley and then to a motor, a stepping motor that was run by the computer. And then the jaws you know, cl would close and open like that. And, and also, the ins see, the inside of the esophagus, you can't just make a, a long tube and film it. You have to have light coming in from the side. Otherwise, just everything is so dark. you know. And so it has to have slits. And, and we made like ribs. you know. But we had to cover that up, and one of the guys, uh, Joe Johnston, uh, came up with an idea that there's a way of making cobwebs in which you take uh, hot glue and you put it in a metal pan and you melt a whole bunch of hot glue. And then you take a portable drill with um, uh, one of those, um, like a wire brush head on it. Not the ones that's like a wheel, but the ones more like a ball. And you dip it in there, and then you stick it in and turn the drill on, and it shoots out these cobwebs all around. So we just, he just did that a hundred times, thousands of times, you know, cobweb, cobweb, cobweb. And if a cobweb was hanging down weird, you'd get rid of it. But if it stayed against the wall, uh, and then the light would still travel through the cobwebs. So uh, even though it looked like it was a solid esophagus, it really had uh, gaps in it. Because then when the Millennium Falcon takes off, you need light to uh, filter in on top of it, you know, not, not running down a black tube. That's but that's, that's how that shot was done. That's wild. Moving from Empire to Jedi, then, to uh -huh. close out the trilogy. We could, even bigger this time, right? You have Jabba's sail barge, you have the speeder bikes, you have you have all these new design elements that then also have to, 
you know, move through the Muir Woods, or you have to really make sure that they they feel realistic. What was what was your challenges moving into Return or Revenge of the Jedi? Well, um, yeah, the speeder bikes uh, through the forest was uh, really something. Uh, it was when they first invented Steadicam at that time, and so uh, we got in touch with a Steadicam guy and and did some experiments in the forest to see um, see how that would work and. You know, it, it seemed there, there was a, a line uh, through the forest. They'd kind of cleared a little little place, and then there was a, a rope, a string line, you know, to, to follow. Uh, but, they, uh, but the Steadicam thing worked good. We kind of did advances in model making, too, because all of the, the speeder bike parts were cast uh, metal. So we, we went to a, a jewelry company. It wasn't in cast in silver or gold, obviously, but in a pot metal. So a lot of these parts of the handlebars and the underneath part of the skin were actually all um, in metal uh, as opposed to plastic because, uh, you know, they got moved around and uh, they were stop-motion puppets so they'd be in reaching. You know, they, you can't have anything break off when that's happening. And they were, uh, they were stop-motion. Inside they had an armature and rubber bodies and that kind of thing. And, and then, of course, the, the outfits had to be pretty stable too. You couldn't, you know, if your finger pushed one and the right. whole uniform went out of cattywampus, you know, yeah. that wouldn't work. There, there was a, a thing that was kind of fun. Uh, it, doing the forest, uh, we, we did a prototype um, in, we had these tubes that we painted to kind of look like trees and then we put some silly little branches on it and some grass hills and everything. And various people walked along with a, a metal rod down to uh, like Barbie dolls on top of a quickie, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, we had a camera that went through the forest like this backwards, like, um, like it would the Steadicam. And so we did little, little prototype shots in a, a little miniature forest that was probably 12 foot long and four foot wide. And there was actually photographs of people walking along with their, you know, one rod with a, uh, with a speeder bike or that kind of thing. And uh, so then they would show that to the director and he'd say, yeah, that looks good. Go with it. That's what we're doing. That kind of thing. But it, it you know, to people on the outside world, it would look pretty silly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the chicken walker. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's an interesting one that um, we... It's that scene in which he gets his head crushed, you know, by the two logs from the Ewok. Right. And I knew that uh, plastic, everybody knows that plastic has a real memory. So you try to crush plastic and then the, the logs bounce back and the, the thing just goes, wrong. Right. You know, they would bounce off of the surface if they did that in plastic. So I at one time um, sculpted motorcycle helmets in the early 70s, early late 60s. And um, so there's a process in which you do it in plastic and then you uh, metal coat that with uh, with nickel. You electro electroplate it, and then with the uh, metal motorcycle helmets, they the mold had to be an eighth of an inch thick. But I just had them, the same company in L.A. I took it down there and just had them barely put a little bit of nickel on it, and then we used uh, acetone to get rid of the plastic. So now it was like a tin can, and it was very soft tin can, like an aluminum tin can. And so when we had those logs that had lead weights on the inside of them, it it really yeah. crushed the head. And we we thought, well, what if somebody thought, well, what if when we crush it, it splits somewhere, and you expose the uh, the people that are inside? And so what we did was we we modeled the director Lucas and the um, the production uh, guy and uh, Watts Water Watts, mm -hmm. and uh, they were in the uniform and everything. And so we thought, well, if their helmets get knocked off, they'll have these little puppets that very quickly look like like them, you know. Yeah. 
but it didn't. We didn't have to do that, but it, it worked out really well. See, there's there's a picture of us getting ready to crush the head, and oh yes, you see the little yeah. characters yeah. there too. But they never. It didn't split in the front, so they right. didn't really you didn't show see up. It the, that's so great. Yeah. Um, well, I would love to talk about prequels. I don't think we have time to talk about prequels. We'll have to do a part two at some point. There's always another day. Right. There's always another day, another celebration. Yeah. Um, but Mr. Peterson, thank you. Oh, sure. so so much. This was oh, sure, sure. incredible. I don't think I, I stopped smiling the past <laughs> forty minutes. Uh, this has been. Uh, ca- you like the cake story, huh? The cake story. Staying in. I'm just going to make a whole episode just cake story. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, I, I, when I when I think about that, I just you just can't believe it. You know that that's the way it worked. But the, our translator was a guy named Pepe Lenzi, and uh-huh. he looked like Marcello Mastroianni with gray hair. He was this Italian who was used to working in Hollywood all the time. And we were 29 years old. We wouldn't have gone Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood. Right. We're really important. And he had no qualms about that. Right. That was his job for the studio. So, you know, we're a team, and we're important people, we're a film. And, you know, so, so we were kind of like, oh, God, Pepe, play it a little easy. You know? but anyway, fun talking to you, too. I love it. Uh, Mr. Peterson, thank you so much for, for joining. And, and if you have not already, to everyone listening, um, definitely buy his, his book, Sculpting a Galaxy from Inside Editions, which is just incredible to look at these details in, in detail so uh, I, I enjoyed it myself right. it's always good telling the old stories I, I don't mind it at all and yeah we'll have uh, to do a part two with with just prequels because <laughs> that's good crazy okay. see you uh, see you another year, another year wow. another Thank you again to Mr. Peterson for the incredible, incredible stories and for being so kind and generous with his time. If you have not already, make sure to pick up a copy of his book, Sculpting a Galaxy, which I have linked to in the show notes. A huge, huge thank you to Inside Editions, especially Eric Chang, who coordinated this interview. Next week, you need to alert Veer's Watch because we're talking to the general himself, Mr. Julian Glover, so stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and may the force be with you.